How are you today? Are you well? Okay, good. I am well as well. And so let's take our Bible or take your Bible and meet me in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Uh, As we continue our study through the book of Acts, we pick up the story here in chapter 22 to find that the Apostle Paul has been accused of an alleged crime he did not commit. Uh, You recall from last week how some of the Jews in Jerusalem incited a crowd against Paul and in fact intended to kill Paul. When, uh, when the Roman commander stationed nearby stepped in and arrested Paul, essentially saving Paul's life. Paul then asked to address the crowd, and when granted permission, he went, uh, he went on to tell them about his life before Christ, uh, his conversion to Christ, and then finally his call from Christ. And it was all a story of, uh, of God's unexpected grace in the life of the Apostle Paul. You remember that he addressed them respectfully uh, as, one of their, as one of them. He spoke with them like family. Uh, and no one could question his Jewish heritage, his education, his religious zeal, and even his fierce opposition to the Christian movement before he came to faith in Christ. And so the change in his life after coming to Christ was also uh, equally evident to everyone present. And we're told that they were actually listening to him up to that point. They were actually tuning in. They were, there's this sense in the text that they were intrigued by, by what Paul was uh, telling them. However, when he told them that God called them, to share this message of Jesus, not with their fellow Jews primarily, but with non-Jews. That was more than they could bear. Yeah, the, uh, as we discussed last week, and really we've seen throughout, there, the divide between... Uh, Jew and Gentile was very real. And there was a lot of prejudice and racism involved. And so when Paul said that God has told me and sent me to preach Jesus to the non-Jews, they just, they lost it. Even as we pick up the story in verse 22. And so today I want to consider just what the outcome of that day, which includes Paul's subsequent exchange with the Roman commander, his appearance before the Jewish council, and then finally his reassuring uh, encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And through it all, we find that Paul pressed on in all good conscience because he lived primarily before the audience of one. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 22. I'll begin at verse 22 and continue through Acts 23, verse 11. Now up to this point, they listened to him. 
And then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he shouldn't even be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, the, the commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched Paul out for the whips, he said to the centurion who was standing by, uh, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and, and said to him, uh, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And the tribune came and, and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, uh, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and, and sent him before them, set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this very day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and, and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we want to thank you for the moments we share this morning in the Scripture, the moments that we've had already uh, just as a community of faith, the opportunity we've had to come together to remember your goodness and to really um, relish in who you are 
and to reflect our joy through the singing of praise and worship and, and even the offering of our prayers and, uh, and even our financial provisions. We thank you for how you have freed us to worship as we ought and to worship who we ought. And so we pray that even now as we come before your holy word that you would encourage us from it, teach us from it, uh, change our lives by it, and help us to understand it and then to live according to its truth. And for this we know that we need the help of the Holy Spirit, so we invite you again, O Spirit of God, to come and uh, unstop our ears and open our hearts that we would receive all you have for us today in and through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So again, uh, the Roman commander, his name is Claudius Lysias, as we learn later in chapter 23. He, at Paul's request, had given Paul the opportunity to address the crowd and speak on his own behalf, but when the situation worsened, uh, and because it was his job, the commander's job, to keep the peace, uh, Lysias ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks to be flogged. Uh, he had to get to the bottom of things, and apparently, uh, brutality and torture was the preferred method. Now, you can't help but wonder what Paul is thinking at this time. Um, Flogging? Really? Flogging. Doesn't that seem a bit extreme? Uh, Can't we just sit down and talk a little bit? How about if we have a chat? How about if we order some DoorDash and just talk over lunch about what's going on, or better yet, here's an idea. Uh, I mean, just take it for what it's worth, but but what if you actually went and asked the people who have falsely accused me? Like, what if you brought them in for questioning instead? Shouldn't the burden of proof be on them as much as it is on me? Flogging, after all, was, was no small thing. It was not a light slap on the wrist. It involved a whip called a flagellum that had these long leather strips attached to the end of a wooden handle and and there were shards of bone or metal embedded into the leather so that each lash effectively grabbed hold of the skin and then tore it and ripped it from the body. This is the same... Uh, punishment that Jesus endured before he was crucified. Victims often died of flogging. And if they didn't die, they certainly were scarred for life, both physically and psychologically. So Paul's being stretched out for the whips. And he plays the only remaining card he had left. 
the, the last card in his hand by appealing to his rights as a Roman citizen. Now, Paul was Jewish. We know this. But somewhere along the line, one of his ancestors apparently received Roman citizenship. Probably his father, though we don't know for sure. Now, in those days, citizenship typically came either by right or by reward. Uh, it was the right of, of those who held office or some position of prestige. And sometimes citizenship was rewarded to those who, who served the empire in some meaningful way. Or, or served the empire through some heroic act. And so uh, maybe Paul's father or grandfather, received their citizenship as a reward for something such as this. And because it could be passed from father to son, Paul was also considered a citizen of Rome. Citizenship could also be purchased, uh, usually, though, by bribe. There, was, there were strings attached. And so even here in the case of the Roman commander, he says that he bought his citizenship for a large sum. And, uh, and from his name, his name, you remember, is Claudius Lysias. Uh, it's probably the case that he, he purchased or bribed the emperor Claudius uh, in exchange. So, so Lysias received his citizenship and in exchange, he took on the emperor's name. It was the way, the, the, apparently this was very commonly done, it was the way that those in power would pass on their name throughout the empire. So he's very proud of the fact that he paid a very large sum for his citizenship, and Paul just says, well, I got mine by birth. And once the commander learned this, he became very fearful because he knew that you just can't flog another Roman without cause. And the soldiers, he just put a stop to the proceedings and the soldiers withdrew from Paul immediately. And I just want to take a moment here because from this scene, I think we learned just a very brief lesson on how and when to exercise your right of citizenship. Uh, as citizens of an earthly kingdom, we also live within a legal structure, uh, just like Paul, and, and we have the right to use that structure to our benefit when necessary. But if the state, so if the state breaks its own law, as Lysias was about to do, or especially God's law, then certainly we aren't required to go along with the injustice. But remember that our highest and our greatest citizenship is in heaven. And because of this, there may be times when you actually choose to surrender your rights here on earth, especially if it means advancing the gospel and the kingdom of God. 
But in this case, Paul appealed to his rights because doing so didn't compromise his faith in God at all. And in fact, it gave him even more opportunity to speak of Jesus as we will see as the life of Paul unfolds. The challenge for us, I think, is making sure that your heavenly citizenship is always the one informing and leading and compelling your earthly citizenship and not the other way around. So the next day, Lysias did what he should have done from the start, really. He called for a meeting of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin consisted of 71 Jewish leaders, including chief priests, uh, lawyers, judges, um, uh, elders of high standing, scribes. It was the highest judicial body among the Jewish people. It was the, the Jewish equivalent of the Supreme Court. And as such, it was their job to decide on the most important matters. Now, though the Romans didn't participate in the legal deliberations themselves, obviously they had the authority to call upon the Sanhedrin in cases such as this, which Lysias did. And so he brought Paul down and he uh, set him in their midst. And as Paul prepared to make his second defense, remember the first one was before the crowd that had gathered outside the barracks, he now prepares to make his second defense And we're told in verse 1 of chapter 23 that he looked intently at the council. You can just picture him scanning the room, eyeballing all who were present, uh, all who had gathered, even as he was probably gathering his own thoughts. And then he launched into his opening statement. Brothers, I have lived my entire life before God in all good conscience to this day. Now that is quite a remarkable statement. How many of us could say that we've lived our entire lives in good conscience and and mean it? And what about Paul's past? Before he came to Christ, he zealously persecuted the church. He pursued Christians and threatened them. He went house to house looking for them, and when he found them, he bound them. He captured them and imprisoned them. And when the authorities were deciding whether to kill them, Paul voted yes all the time. Think of the many lives Paul destroyed, the many families he tore apart. And yet now he can stand before the highest court in in Judaism and testify to having a clear conscience. How can this be? And the answer is in those two words, before God. 
It's because Paul stood before God first and foremost. Now conscience, you know this, your, your conscience is that little voice inside of you that tries to steer you in the right direction. The problem though, as I'm sure you've experienced yourself, the problem is that your conscience is limited. It's not infallible. And it cannot always accurately discern between right and wrong. Because though your conscience makes moral and ethical judgments every day, it can only operate according to the moral and ethical standard you've given it. Or that it's been exposed to. Therefore, if it's been given faulty information, it may convince you that what you're doing is right, when in fact it's very, very wrong. You with me? That's why Paul... When he looked back on his pre-Christian days, he could say in Philippians chapter 3, he he said, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Now, it wasn't that he was literally blameless. It's that he, he was blameless in the sense that he followed the law of Judaism to a T. In other words, even though he thought he was doing right by persecuting Christians and protecting Jewish law, he was obviously terribly, terribly, horribly wrong. Now, however, Paul lived by another standard, and this is key. He lived by the standard, by the only true and perfect standard, because now he stood before God. It was no longer the law. It was no longer his own subjective moral compass. And because the gospel by which he was saved and had been preaching for the last 20 or so years taught that Jesus, the sinless one, put himself in our place and bore our sins in his death on the cross, Paul knew that all of his wrongs had been completely atoned and forgiven by God, every single one of them, without exception. It was by the grace and mercy of God that his conscience was clear. When it comes to assessing your own conscience then, It really is a matter of which standard you live by. Yours or God's. Because our confidence can be as clear as Paul's was as long as we live before God as he did. I want to press this a little bit further because I think it's important to know that you don't have to live in uncertainty or confusion any longer. You don't have to drag your guilt around with you any longer. You don't have to carry that baggage from your past any longer because if you cling to the hope of the gospel as Paul did, you now have a firm foundation upon which to build your life, knowing that God in Christ has atoned for your sins. And He will forgive all who come to Him in repentance and faith. And He has given us, 
you, the truth of His Word, the Holy Scripture, the Bible, God's Word is a divine lamp unto your feet and a light from heaven unto your path. Today, even today, you can live in all good conscience if you will grab hold of Christ. Well, no sooner than the words of a good conscience came out of Paul's mouth, the high priest, whose job it was to uh, seek and find justice, ordered him to be struck in the mouth. (laughs) That seemed to push a button for Paul. I understand that. And so he says... God's going to strike you, you hypocrite. How can we expect you to uphold the law when you just broke the law by striking me without without cause? You, you, You hypocrite. You're like a whitewashed wall. Yeah, yeah, you look the part. You give the appearance of purity and justice, but it's all a facade, and God's going to deal with you personally. How can you speak to to the high priest like that, someone said, to which Paul replied, basically, I'm sorry, you're right. I didn't know he was the high priest. Because God has indeed said that we're not to speak evil against a ruler of the people. Now, some think Paul's being sarcastic here, that he knew exactly what he was saying and to whom. Others believe Paul's eyesight was poor, and therefore he really didn't know it was the high priest because he couldn't see him. And still others speculate that Paul simply didn't recognize that Ananias was the high priest or even know that, that, uh, who the high priest was because it had been many years since he had come to Jerusalem. In the end, we just aren't sure. But what I want to make sure is that we don't Uh, strip Paul of his humanity here. Now, obviously, he was an amazing missionary and man of God, but I want to be careful to not deify the Apostle Paul by assuming that he always got it right. And in fact, uh, I think it's entirely possible that he lost his cool here for a moment. I mean, is there there any, is is that a stretch to say that Paul, for a moment, lost his cool? I think it's totally understandable given what he's endured the last couple of days and uh, and I I don't and I think when he realized this when he realized his wrong he made as sincere an apology as he could in that moment I think Paul's outburst uh, in many ways kind of reveals that Paul was human just like us that we have outbursts too. Which means that his quickness to make it right should instruct us to do likewise in those moments when we lose our composure. Now the Sanhedrin was a mix of two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I love what happens here. At times these two groups saw eye to eye 
uh, but there were a few fundamental differences between them. For example, the Pharisees were not nearly as accepting of the Romans as the Sadducees were. Uh, the Sadducees often collaborated with Rome for money. Uh, the Sadducees, by and large, were very wealthy, uh, not only because of their high standing in the Jewish society, but also because they, freak, they were frequently paid or paid off to push a Roman agenda. And so there were different views between these two groups regarding their relationship with Rome. Another more important theological difference was the Pharisees believed in the spiritual realm and in life after death, which the Sadducees did not. And Paul, who of course knew these fundamental differences, saw an opportunity. He let it be known that he was a Pharisee. Through and through. He's the son of a Pharisee. And then he brings the real issue to the table, saying, listen, the real reason why some of the Jews are against me is because I hope, I have hope in the resurrection of the dead. And I think this is just an incredibly sly maneuver on Paul's part. I think it's a, 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 a way an honest way of saving his own bacon by getting these two groups fighting amongst themselves. It's like the child who's in trouble with one parent and then immediately warms up to the other parent so that... uh, So that the two parents are no longer focused on the child or what happened, but rather on their interpretation of what happened. Which I'm I'm, I'm sure never happens in your home. (laughs) Never happens in my home. I do think Paul saw a A tactical advantage here. But I think it was more than that. More than an attempt to just distract and and divide. I, I believe Paul sincerely did want to make it known that he believed in the resurrection. And that that's the basis of his hope and that this belief is what caused such outrage against him. He believed that Jesus of Nazareth died for sins and rose from the dead. And because of this, he believed in the final Resurrection of the dead. Paul believed there was more than this life only. And that the life to come is even more real and therefore far superior to this one. Because those who trust in Jesus Christ in this life will be raised to everlasting life with God in glory. I think this is, this is why... Paul lived as he did, why he was willing to suffer and sacrifice so much because he truly believed, as he told the Philippians, he truly believed that for for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. Sure enough, the Pharisees took Paul's side and in verse 9 they declared him innocent, which of course sent the Sadducees into a tailspin. There was dissension in the room. Things escalated quickly. You can picture it. Uh, It became violent. 
And the picture here, it seems like Paul was literally caught in the middle as if they're playing tug of war with his body. And the Roman commander is afraid that Paul's going to be torn limb from limb. So he sends the soldiers down to take Paul by force and get him safely into the barracks. So twice now, once before the crowd that gathered uh, outside the barracks, and now here before the Sanhedrin, Paul's defense before his fellow Jews has fallen on deaf ears. And then we come to verse 11, which reads, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And here Paul was assured of two things. God's presence and God's promise. It says the Lord stood by him. I like that picture. The Lord stood by him. Sometimes when you're in the thick of it, just knowing that someone is in it with you, Choosing to be in it with you can make all the difference. It's what we call a ministry of presence. You may not know what to say. You may not know what to do. But your presence can mean the world to the person who is hurting in that moment. Your presence. And in that moment, in that jail cell, as Paul thought about his situation, I'm sure he had to stave off all kinds of doubt and despair. And Jesus came and stood by him. This is an impactful moment for Paul because we find out later, when he looked back on this night and wrote about it to Timothy. Timothy was his pastoral protege and his partner in ministry. He reflected on this experience, saying in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, At my first defense, meaning my first formal defense, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. They all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued, he says, from the lion's mouth. The presence of the Lord that night made a deep impression upon Paul's heart and the promise of the Lord heartened him also. Take courage, said Jesus, because I have plans for you in Rome. Just as there is purpose for you here, so have I also purposed things for you there. 
Paul had witnessed to the facts of Jesus in Jerusalem, and he was to do likewise in Rome as well. Now sometimes to know that, or to know that God has a plan, just to know that God has a plan is reassuring in and of itself. Even on a human level, right? Even on a human level, just knowing that your boss or leader or coach, just knowing there's a plan in place can be very reassuring. It's when there is no plan, or at least one that has been communicated, it's then when you grow unsettled and nervous. Because when the unexpected hits and everything turns to chaos, that's when you lean on the plan. When you don't know what to make of what's happening around you, you lean on what you do know. God has a plan. And because His plans are always good and because He is sovereign, meaning that no one can throw God off course, no one can thwart God's plans, we can rest in His promises. I think... I think, I think Jesus told Paul to take courage because Paul probably lacked courage in those moments. It's like when the people of Israel were crossing over into the promised land. It was unfamiliar territory. There were enemies in that land, and some of them were very intimidating. The man who'd been leading them for 40 years, Moses, was, now, was dead, and, and now Joshua was in charge. And so three times in the opening book of Joshua, God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. Be strong, very courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I love this. When Joshua then began, he leaves that time with the Lord. And then he goes out with the people. And he starts to prepare the people and rally the people. Like, we're taking the land. Gather yourselves. Here we go. And he's out getting ready to to lead the people. And then they say to him, Be strong and courageous. Now, why did Joshua need to be told over and over again to be strong and courageous? Probably because he didn't feel particularly strong or courageous. He probably felt weak and lacking in courage. As did Paul, maybe, probably. So God reminded him of the plan. God reminded him of the promise. And God reassured him with his presence. You may never find yourself in a situation like Joshua or Paul. But be assured if you have come to to faith in Christ, if you've come to Christ through repentance and faith, then He has promised Himself to you as well. So be strong 
and courageous. From his exchange with the Roman commander to his appearance before the Jewish council to his encounter with the, with the risen Christ, Paul pressed on in all good conscience because he lived before God primarily before the audience of one. May God help us to do the same. Amen. Father, we thank you for our time. I just want to pray a, I want to pray over the congregation here. I want to pray over each person here. I don't know every situation. I don't know every circumstance. I don't know every doubt. I don't know every despairing thought. I don't know every twinge of uncertainty. I don't know who feels strong and who feels weak and who is courageous and who lacks in courage, but you do. And so would you help us, each one of us, would you help each person here to live each day in all good conscience before you, knowing that you are with us and that you have a plan for us. May we rest in your goodness today through Christ our Lord. Amen.